Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. For today's podcast, we return to our series on language with a look at the art of translation. Our guest, Lynn Tatlock, is a professor within the Germanic Languages and Literatures Department here at Washington University in St. Louis. She also chairs the Comparative Literature Program, which offers a certificate in translation studies. Tatlock has translated several works herself, and a little later on, she'll be talking about that process and some of the challenges. But to get started, she'll be discussing two recent projects. The first involves the famous 19th century novel Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. You may very well be familiar with this book, but according to Tatlock, the novel's relationship with the German language is a whole other story. I am looking at the sojourn of Jane Eyre in Germany, which is a very convoluted and ramified story. Shortly after the novel's original publication in 1847, Jane Eyre made its way to Germany, both in English and in German translation. And thereafter, within the next 10 years, it was translated, I believe, four more times. It was also made into a very, um, what shall I say, strange play. This strange play was then translated into English and performed both in the US and in England, the story's original birthplace. And we're not finished. The story is still more complicated than that because in the 1880s, Jane Eyre began to be uh, adapted. At least six adaptations for young girls were written, for example. And in addition, the novel was spreading in other ways. German authors began expressing similar themes and values in their own original novels. And according to Tatlock, more was going on here than mere popularity of Jane and Mr. Rochester's story. My argument is that it's much more than imitations. It's something that somehow diffused uh, into other people's writing and it endures for a, a long, long time. So basically, by bringing multiple languages and translations into the picture, Tatlock hopes to show how the influence and endurance of a novel like Jane Eyre might last much longer than previously thought. What I'm trying to do is move attention from first-time publication by an individual author to bring in all the other players in this process, uh, including translators, adapters, publishers, and readers, and um, as that combination of agents then ramifies across um, national borders. Though the story of Jane Eyre in Germany is particularly convoluted, in the 19th century, novels and translation themselves were quite commonplace. For her book, German Writing, American Reading, Tatlock looked at one subset of this group, German fiction translated into English by American women. Some of these books have titles that wouldn't seem too out of place in a romance aisle of a major bookstore today, the Bride of the Nile, A Brave Woman, and A Maiden's Choice are a few examples. However, there are some differences between these romances and the ones you'd find today. 
you wouldn't have had sex scenes in the 19th century. But you know, that's where you have to learn how to read because someone just touching someone else or a man and a woman calling one another by their first names just totally sizzles because it's a world that has to do with restraint and holding back and delaying gratification. So uh, again, if you know how to read the books, they're quite uh, exciting to read. So these novels don't have sex scenes, but they do have certain plot elements that might seem familiar. For one, these stories pretty much always have happy endings. Though the characters face different obstacles, you can safely bet that come the final pages, there will be a 19th century picture of marital bliss. But of all the books with happy endings available, these German stories had particular appeal. Why? My view of this is that they are in a way more acceptable because you can take them with a large grain of salt because after all it is another country. So they're both familiar and strange at the same time. Whether or not a book had this balance between feeling familiar and strange relied in large part on translators like Mrs. E. L. Wister. Here we get into more of the nitty gritty of transforming a piece of writing from one language into another. E. L. Wister was one of the translators covered in Tatlock's book, and she had a reputation for making even dull stories fun to read. But what makes her, or anyone, a good translator? She is a very loose translator. She just has a way with words uh, that's uh, just very lively and freer. So if you compare her to some of the same translations of the same books by other translators, you see that sometimes they're a bit more accurate or close to the original, but hers are more fun to read. Part of this liveliness was accomplished by not making an American version of a book sound too American. She'll leave something in that sounds a little bit like German, you know, so there's a sort of quaintness or foreignness to it that adds a little spice to it. Even today, many translators would appreciate this aspect of Wister's style. According to Tatlock, one theory of translation that has gained high profile in recent years is that of Lawrence Benuti, who believes that translated texts should retain much of their foreign style. However, as Tatlock knows from her own work, not every approach is right for every translation. Tatlock has translated five books altogether, all of them historical works by women, including nonfiction texts, poetry, and novels. So when I translated myself, uh, I really wanted to make sure that the book was digestible enough that today's reader might have some enjoyment reading it. So I shied away from purposely doing things that made the text sort of resistant or hard to read, but since I was translating older texts, I tried to make sure that I wasn't using language that sounded too contemporary. Translating older texts also has other distinct challenges. In order to get to this step of deciding how to translate something, first you have to know what the original text means. Words were spelled differently, so you might look at them and look at them and not even know that you're looking at a fairly common word. Change this consonant and that consonant and the vowel as well, and then suddenly you have the word. But if you don't think in terms of making those changes, then you can sit and look at that. No matter where you look it up, you won't find it. So say you're working on a 17th century midwifery handbook on obstructed labor. This is one of the books Tatlock actually translated. As you might expect, striking a balance between too antiquated and too contemporary language would be just one of many challenges. 
for me, the biggest challenges there were first learning, I had to learn a lot about 17th century obstetrics. Some very simple things like, you know, we're talking about a hand that's inserted into a uterus and what the hand is doing. So there were a lot of times when I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what is happening? You did what? And one thing that helped me a lot in doing that was talking to obstetricians. Just things like that helped a lot. So which direction are you pulling? Which way are you turning? And so forth and so on. I went and watched a, a few um, live births uh, with help from the med school to bring myself up to speed on that. And in addition to simply understanding and being able to communicate technical knowledge in multiple languages, there are also constant cultural references to consider. And then even when you find a word that's probably the equivalent, it just doesn't resonate in quite the same way. So uh, probably an American would read right over it where a German would stop and look at it. So for example, if you say the sunlight uh, glanced off the point of the helmet well, what would an American think? Do helmets have points? And what could that possibly mean? But the German army helmet had this thing on it like this on top of the helmet. So that's the point up there. And someone would immediately know that that has to do with a helmet that was worn in the Franco-Prussian War. So do you put in a footnote or do you just say the point of a helmet and assume that the, the reader doesn't care anyway, but that tells you immediately that the invalid father, you know, fought in the Franco-Prussian War without saying it. In spite of all these kinds of complications, Tatlock believes that the act of translation is an enjoyable challenge. First of all, it is a creative activity, so it's very close, actually, to writing your own fiction, although you're sort of pinned in by what somebody else did. And for someone who has a creative bent and likes to work with language, it is a wonderful and gratifying thing to do. Of course, the process of translating literature provides far more than a creative and intellectual outlet for the translators themselves. Long after Mrs. Wister, Writers and readers around the world continue to enjoy works translated from foreign languages. Yet many books are only published in their original language. And as one German author put it, he who is not translated shall be mute. This, Tatlock believes, is part of why studying and practicing translation continues to be so valuable. How do books even get considered for internationally recognized prizes, such as the Nobel Prize for Literature, if they haven't been translated into a language that some of the judges can read. So if we want to think about a global world in which more and more people have literary voices, then translation is vital. So it's kind of an uphill battle. So it's important to do it, and it's just particularly important that universities take up the slack where it's not happening commercially we have the possibility of making some things available. Many thanks to Lynn Tatlock for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty profile and many more ideas to explore on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and PRX.